0: Welcome to another episode of the Bighorn Podcast, featuring interesting people with extraordinary stories. This episode is brought to you with the support of Leeds and Sun Fine Jewelers. I'm your host, Marty Lockman, and today we'll be talking to Jim Colbert, a winner of 35 professional golf tournaments and an integral part of the Bighorn experience from the very start. Jim, thanks for being here. Already happy to be here. Before we talk about your professional success and your involvement in Bighorn, I would love for you to start with the story at the beginning in Elizabeth, New
1: Jersey, and the
0: experience that affected your future.
1: Well, uh, March 9th, 1941, I, I was born in St. Elizabeth Hospital, Elizabeth, New Jersey. And We uh, lived in Nutley for four years. Now, obviously, I don't remember a whole bunch about that, but I do remember, I've heard the story enough times, but I think I remember, uh, I woke up one morning, I was like four years old, and uh, I was just screaming. I was hurting really bad, and uh, my whole body was hurting, and my parents were scared to death, and I remember the doctor's name for some reason, Dr. Whalen but everybody thought I had polio. And uh, so they examined me. They did all kinds of stuff. And Dr. Whalen said, no, he doesn't have polio. And So they got to talking to me. And at the bottom of our street where we lived in an apartment, there was a high school and there was a football field. And apparently I had gone down there and the boys were playing football and they used me as the football. (laughs) So they beat the heck out of me. So that's my recollection of Elizabeth, New Jersey. Other than being back there when I was on the regular tour, uh, I was with my good friend, Dean Reffram. we used to travel together, he played the circuit for years. And he had a buddy there, and that guy brought a buddy, and you, we are sitting there at dinner. That guy was born in the same hospital, the same day, almost the same time. <laughs> That I was, you know, you've run into people with birthdays, but it's the same hospital, same day, same time. Uh, So that's my two real recollections of living in New Jersey. So from there, we moved to Carlisle, Pennsylvania. And uh, I stayed there till the uh, summer between the fifth and sixth grade when we moved to Overland Park, Kansas. But in Pennsylvania and Carlisle... My dad was a coach They had Little League Baseball team, and I played on that. You know, it was like 8 to 12, and I might have been 8, and I was just on the team. But every once in a while, they'd put me in. Uh, We had a guy named Washington who was a heck of a ball player, played basketball and football, was a big star at Purdue. But on that that team, I apparently was on base, and he hit it, Somewhere between second and third, he he just picked me up and carried me <laughs> the rest of the way around. So I was always involved in sports. I used to play uh, golf. Even in those days, they dropped me off at the Carlisle Country Club, and you know, I'm eight nine years old. I got my first set of clubs when I was eight. That you know, like a driver, three wood, a couple of irons, and a putter. And uh, but they brought them to me on the golf course because I used to use Mrs. Snyder's clubs. So my earliest golf was at, at the Carlisle Country Club and I used to play all during the summer and then my dad coached a basketball team in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And he recruited from the Carlisle Army Barracks and I think they went undefeated for two years. I mean, he had some real players. Ironically, two of those players that played on that basketball team when they were seniors in college, one at West Point and uh, one at Annapolis, they were both captain of their football team. So uh, I've always been involved with sports. Then we moved to Kansas City in the summer between the fifth and sixth grade. I was on my bicycle, I rode down to Prairie Village and uh, there was a baseball team, little three and two type thing and I asked the man, I said, how would you get on the team? He said, oh, do you play baseball? I said, yes, sir. He said, what do you play? I said, second base. He said, well, I need a catcher. I said, well, I'm probably the best catcher you'll ever see. And so I, I made the team. They actually backdated the contract a little bit. But in those days, everybody had to play two innings or something. And uh, so when they take me out or something, you know, I didn't like that too much. But eventually they just... Moved around to everybody else. I was the first one that could actually throw the ball to second base and catch a runner. You know, in those days, you get on first, you steal second, you steal third. It was automatic. It was automatic, so, so that was fun. So I played baseball there, and then that summer, went to the grade school, the sixth grade, and I actually played on the eighth grade, seventh and eighth grade football team. And uh, I was a little short, fat in, but at least I could catch. But after I catch it, I never could outrun anybody. They'd always catch me from behind. But so I always played football, basketball, baseball, and golf. And so it was only limited months for all of that as as I was growing up.
0: Was golf, I mean, did you even have any thought at that time that, I mean, you liked all sports like most of us did. Was golf the favorite or, I mean, at that time, you didn't think, well, this might be a
1: career for me. I mean, you're a young kid, but... Well, my hero was Johnny Lattner from Notre Dame. He was a halfback. You know, he was 6'1", 190. So that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to be a football player. I wanted to be 6'1 and 190. As it turned out, in my rest of my life, I wouldn't have had much trouble making the 190. I just <laughs> couldn't make the one. And, you know, I topped out at about 5'9". And uh, I always thought of, you know... Football, it's crazy. I didn't like practice because in those days, we, man, we used to hit every day. Well, I wasn't willing to die in practice. But in the games, you know, I'd put it all on the line. And I played quarterback and sometimes middle linebacker and sometimes safety, just depending on what the situation was. And uh, my senior year at Bishop Mage High School, which was the first year for that, it was St. Agnes for three years. And then we got a new school, a new building, changed the name. And that's still the only undefeated football team. Uh, that they've won some state championships, but that's still the only undefeated football team. And uh, so I played a lot of basketball. I had offers for basketball, football, and golf uh, in college. I was actually – there was two schools at the time that played for the national championship, and it was Oklahoma State and Houston. So Labron Harris was the coach at Oklahoma State. He saw me play in the Kansas City Open as an amateur. And so he offered me a full scholarship at Oklahoma State. Kansas State had offered me a golf, I mean a football scholarship. So I decided I'd just go and uh, go to Oklahoma State. So I went down there early. I got there probably five or six days early. I was living with the coach's house and I could see that I was gonna clash a little bit with him. I had my own ideas about how I worked at my game and what I did and whatever, but probably didn't know a darn thing, but thought I did. And uh, so actually one day I went out, they were practicing football, you know, school hadn't started. So I went, you know, real naive. I came out, I said, you know, I think I'll go out for your football team. And he said, my golfers don't play football. And uh, I just got up the next day and said, you know, thanks a lot, but I'm out of here. And I called Kansas State, and they said they still had a football scholarship. Well, when I went to Oklahoma State, my dad had a good friend. He had a twin-engine airplane and all that kind of stuff. So I flew down to Oklahoma State, you know, with my dad and friend and all that stuff, and I arrived at Kansas State on a bus from Stillwater, you know. (laughs) It hadn't worked out at all summer, I just played golf. And, you know, got thrown right into football. And uh, my right shoulder, I separated it, knocked it down. It it probably was a lot more serious than they said. And so in those days you had to be freshman, and you only played, uh, they had two games. So I missed the first game and the second game we played in Nebraska, and that was, uh, oh, uh, the famous coach at Nebraska, Devaney. Right. That was his first big recruiting team. Uh, Dennis Claridge was the quarterback. He played in the NFL. Uh, Thunder Thornton played seven years for the Cardinals. I mean, these guys were monsters. That, you know, We played them on a Friday afternoon, but it had rained all Thursday night and all Friday during the game, thank God, because it was a quagmire out there. So in those days, you had to play both ways. You could get one or two substitutions a down. So I was the quarterback and the defensive back. They didn't have corners and all that stuff in those days, so I was a defensive halfback in it. So there's a couple plays, I'll bore you with the details that will always be in my mind. So I'm playing halfback on defense and here comes Thunder Thornton, you know, around, you know, right the start of the game. It's coming around my way. So I run up there, I'm gonna keep him on the inside because it was my right shoulder. And he must have tried to cut inside or whatever because when I got there, I ended up with both his legs and he's on the ground, never felt a thing. I thought, man, this guy's overrated, you know. The one that I'll never forget, I got this picture just trying to tell this story. Uh, The very next play, they hand to him right up the middle. So I just came running in from the right halfback spot. And it's a perfect picture, Marty. There's nobody. I mean, there's nobody in my picture frame, none. It's him and me. Nobody's blocking. Nobody's laying on the ground. You talk about driving a truck through there. I mean, there was nobody. And I was thinking, where in the hell did everybody go? So I run in there, and I hit him with my left shoulder, and I mean, it was a big crash. And so I'm laying there in the mud. My helmet's on sideways. And I get all this water and mud in my face. And I'm thinking, he must have gone for a touchdown. And I turn my head, and I'm looking through the ear of the helmet. You remember what they said? <laughs> I'm looking through the ear of the helmet, and he's laying on the ground about 10 yards down there. So I thought, well, hell, he must have tripped over me. You know, so that play, I went back to pass on offense. And, boy, everybody's brothers come from my right and there's a defensive end coming from my left, but I got a fullback between him. So I step up behind the fullback to the left. He bails, he throws an ankle high, you know, body block. At the same time, this six, three or four end, he leaps. He landed on top of my head, right on top of me, you know? And I can't tell you what I said to that fullback, (laughs) okay? One other play, I'm blocking for the punter. He kicks, and that boy doesn't sound good, and boy, it's a wounded duck going over to the right. I know it's going to be their ball, but they can pick it up and run. So I'm racing this lineman over there, and, you know, I can beat him. And the ball's laying there, so I leap to land on it, and he sticks out his right arm and catches me. We had a single bar for a mask. Catches me under the mask with his forearm, and I just come straight down, and I'm laying there, you know, two yards short of the football. How did he do that? You know, I should have ripped his arm off, right? Laying there. So, I still was gonna play some football. I practiced out uh, all the rest of the year. And then we were lifting some weights and stuff. It was one day in March, and it was supposedly a volunteer thing, and uh, it was a nice day. I, I had a 51 Henry J, nobody's even heard of that, but bought it for $100, anyway. Marsh's money, <laughs> anyway. So we, I, I go up to the country club and I play nine holes, and I shot like forty three or four. I was my neck was bigger, my shoulders were bigger, and my chest. And I thought, God, am I ever going to be able to play golf? So I had a really bad night. <clears throat> Went down to the AD. And I said, is there any chance I could get a golf scholarship to this school? Of course, they didn't have such a thing. He says, sure, Colbert, at least now you're getting smart. I can do that. So from that time on, I concentrated on. Golf on, started to look on, pretty good. Yeah, like right now, just relating how I felt in the shoulders and the neck. I mean, that's what Tiger did. That's what McElroy did. They all got too big in the chest. And. Uh, Faldo, you know, he started working out. I don't know if you remember it, but all of a sudden he came back 20 pounds heavier, big in the chest. He played like two or three weeks, disappeared for a couple months, got rid of all that. And if you look at Tiger now, you look at McElroy, they have really gotten rid of those big necks and big chests. They look like they're a lot younger and in golf shape. You don't want big, huge shoulders and chest. Uh, in golf if you if you can help it if it's a natural thing that's one thing but if you just build up those muscles you don't have the flexibility or the same coordination
0: right a guy like
1: Kepka maybe can yeah. carry it but oh the yeah other guys, that's his Kemp. natural build
0: right,
1: right. uh you know I, what blows my mind about Kepka is <laughs> he works out before he plays now, that I would think That'd be the last thing you want to do, but uh, I'm not telling him what to do. Well, in,
0: in our day, too, even lifting weights, they would tell you, oh, yeah. you're going to get muscle-bound and you're right. not going to be able to be as— Well,
1: they were right. Yeah. I mean, but, you know, anything you can do on your forearms, your arms, your legs uh, for strength, that's that's terrific, especially legs.
0: And then in 64, you finished second in the NCAAs. Yeah. And then 65, you turned pro.
1: Well, Yeah. Uh, I mean, you probably think I'm making this one up, but so I won the Missouri amateur in 63 and then in uh, 64, the NCAA and then in 65, I won the Kansas amateur and then, you know, the Kansas amateur, you remember Jim Hardy, the teacher, you know, I beat him in the semifinals. I beat Greer Jones in the finals, you know, Greer won a bunch of tournaments and, uh, so I was working for the Aetna Insurance Company uh, selling life insurance. And I was guaranteed 7500 a year, and then I could make some more on, if I got over on the commission scale. And my dad was in the electronics business, crystals, two-way communications. And he'd made a lot of stuff for the government, highly sophisticated uh, crystals. So he'd set up a Job for me with K Electronics, and I was going to make fifteen thousand a year, and travel the United States like my dad did, and uh, so that you know sounded pretty good. So I won on the Sunday, and then Monday morning is my interview, but it's really already set. But I'm going to go to work for K Electronics. So Dick Mackey was a sports writer. He died at age 50. I mean, he wrote for a lot of big stuff on the tour and Sports Illustrated and all. He really had a bright, he had a heart attack when he was 50 and died. But he always, he followed me since grade school. So he's gonna do me a favor. So I get up to see the Kansas City Stars, see the article. And it's just Jim Colbert, a Life Insurance Salesman, wins Kansas amateur. I never read another word. It, it was like I got slapped in the face. I don't know if it's the first time I ever really thought about who I am or what I am. And But the way it hit me, I'm Jim Colbert Jock. I'm athletic. So I go for the interview. I'm gonna do the whole thing. We sit down probably a half hour. Uh, the last question I asked was, well, oh, what kind of car am I gonna get? I thought, at least I get a new car, plus I'm gonna double my salary. And uh, he says, geez, Jim, I don't know. He says, we got some eight cars around here. You'll get one of those. And he, I sure stuck out his hand. I shook my hand. He said, we got a deal? I said, Mr. K, this is, you know, I can't thank you enough for the offer and all that, you know. I said, but if I'm going to travel around the United States in a car, I think I'll throw my clubs in the trunk and see if I can't make a living doing that. And, I mean, I didn't know where that came from. He was shocked, you know. I, you know, I thanked him again and everything, left. Went back to the insurance company and quit and then go home. You know, Marsh is all excited. You know, we're doubling whatever. And I said, I didn't take the job, why not? I said, well, that's worse than that. She said, what do you mean worse than that? I said, I quit. What do you mean you quit? How are we gonna live? I said, I don't know. Uh, But you'll have food to eat and a roof over your head. And you know, we already had three kids. And uh, so I went around trying to raise some money, you know, but all the guys ahead of me, they just walked on tour. All you had to do is go out and try to qualify on Monday. Well, I didn't even know they put in a qualifying system. So it turns out I got to fill out all these forms I got to come up with twelve thousand dollars access to twelve thousand dollars and I got to go to the qualifying school all right so I what go,
0: did dad have to say about this when you're done
1: My dad and mom didn't like it uh, he wasn't even going to be one of them I was trying to find six guys put up two thousand apiece and uh, I mean I got a couple guys right away but I came home and told Marshall, I said, you know, this town's broke. I said, everybody's got kids in college. Nobody's got an extra 2,000. They're, you know, but anyway, I went to Ned Bishop, who was a good friend of my dad's, who had been a pilot up till he was 35, you know, flying small aircraft and all that kind of stuff. And uh, he started flying my dad around to a lot of different airports because they were selling a lot of crystals. And after six months, he told my dad, you know, you don't have to go. I can do the sales job, too. And, you know, two years later, he had his own company and became very, very successful. And so I went to see Ned, and he had two boys. And Ned said, no, I don't like it, Jim. I don't think it's the right thing. He says, you know, uh, I was a pilot. You know, I've already been down that road, you know. Uh, I think it's a big waste of time, so I'm sorry. I can't do it so he called me back about a day and a half later and he says come down see me so i go see mr bishop and he said i'll tell you what i'm gonna do i'm gonna put up a couple thousand and i'll get the other guys and he says, i think this is a terrible idea but i can see i can see myself in you he says you got to get this out of your system so you go out there for a year and you know You'll find out how difficult it is, how lonely it is. You know, there's no money out there. And you put in your year, and then you can come back, get a real job, and be a useful member of society. So, I I go out. I I go to the qualifying school, and there's a bunch of guys that I knew. And there was like 56 of us, and they were gonna give 16 or 17 spots and that just gave you the right to go qualify on Monday didn't get you anything Just go qualify Well, we're gonna play eight rounds in those days it was PGA West and uh, It was a really really hard golf course and the wind blows and it's raining every day. We're playing eight rounds and After the first round or two, you know, I'm 50th 49th, whatever and so I start fighting my way back and getting to the 8th hole the last day. I'm in. I'm you know, I'm right on the number, it's a par 4 and I make 8. So now I've got 10 holes left. And I remember I birdied the 143rd hole, par 5. To uh, tie, Jim Langley. You may, he, Jim was the pro at Cypress Point for all those years. Uh, he he, uh, he he got in a car wreck, tore up his shoulder, and you know really only had one arm after that. And he was he was a pro at Cypress for thirty years. And so we were playing the last round together. So I knew I had to catch him. And so I get up and try to hit a hard, low hooking driver. There's a lake on the left, and then there's some more room. Then there's another lake up by the green, and it's right into this big wind. So I think I got to hit a low hook, and a three wood even come close. So it looks and it looks like it bounces in the water, and he gets up and hits a one iron out to the right. I thought, you know, he's, you know, he's going to be at the right again, and now he's got to come into the wind over this bunker, pins on the back. But so I'm not in the water, but I'm standing on the rocks, you know, and the ball's about hip high, and I'm going to try to hit a three-wood, so I'm really, I'm addressing it, I'm getting ready to do it, <clears throat> and I just stopped, I said, you know, this ain't going to work, <laughs> so, I mean, the best he can make is five, is, you know, I'm starting to rationalize, because that's the guy that I got to get to, that I'm tied with, so I decided to drop it, take my club lance, and I drop it. Marty, I don't know the mental gymnastics that everybody goes through, whatever. So now I've got to rip a three wood to get it to the green. And I'm getting over it. I mean, I'm addressing it. I'm getting ready to hit it. And I stop. And I kind of chuckle to myself. And I look at my left arm, and then I look at my right arm. I say, well, I'm not bleeding. You know, if I try any harder, I'm going to show blood. I mean, that's how... That's how involved I was. But I had the presence of mind to stop and kind of laugh to myself and I don't see any blood. You know, you try any harder, you're gonna start bleeding. Kind of chuckled, got up and just ripped his three wood and I got it maybe a foot on the green. So he's over to the right, third shot goes in the bunker, but I'm I got an 80 footer if it's an inch. However big, it was a new course, so you can imagine how big the greens are. And I got to put it right up by the bunker and then it's going to turn left and come down towards the hole. I have no idea how long it took me to hit this putt, but picture this. I have, I can't, how I got where I got. So I got to hit this thing 15, 20 feet to the right, up by the fringe, and come down. It's a minimum of 80 feet, might have been 100. So I hit it. The next thing I know, I'm on the far side of the hole. The ball's still got 25 feet to get there. I'm on the hole rooting it down, saying, come on down, come on down. I mean, I left it maybe an inch short right in the middle. And of course, I made my five. He hit the hole out of the bunker, but it, you know, it can't stop about three or four feet. And so we tied. So when they were giving away the cards, I got the last card because the way my name was, we were tied, but if it was 17, he got 16, I got 17, whatever. And all the guys there—I mean, they all kind of knew me from college. All the amateur golf. Colbert, you made it. See, everybody dismissed me because I was always way back, and uh, they dismissed me. And I, you know, I said, "Well, sure. What are you, what are you talking about? You but this know? is for your livelihood." I mean, this hey, is... I'm back in the insurance business. I mean, if I don't, I've got one shot, and it was—it was, it was fair, and I knew it. I, I knew it, and. But that part about looking at my arms, where does that come from? I mean, what a gift. I mean, I just relaxed myself by chuckling, knowing I had to do this. But you got to be able to function. I would
0: imagine that's a lesson that served you well for the rest of your career. Oh, oh, yeah. oh yeah. Being able to do that under pressure yeah. and being able to have the, the peace of mind or the state of mind to, to know right. that
1: you need to relax. Right. I've hit so many shots, critical shots. Where I needed to do it, but I didn't know if I could. But this is what I have to do. I, you know, I can't laugh. I can't do. I gotta. This is what I gotta do. And I know it sounds eerie, but I could be standing over the ball, getting ready to hit, and I could see me like standing up here in the clouds, watching, just to see if I could do it. I mean, it's. Do you draw on
0: those experiences even when you're out playing? Now, I mean... Well,
1: you know, I don't have those same powers right now, but those those are acquired and practiced. They really are. And, you know, the hardest thing for an athlete or even actors or, you know, anybody that's really visible, uh, to me, when I'm under the most stress is the neatest feeling in the world. It's a natural high. I never try to back it down. You know, I recognize it, and I want to go through the top because all the good stuff is what they call the zone. And, you know, I'd go the first tee on the last day. I mean, I'm jumping out of my skin. I wouldn't let anybody know it, but, I'm, you know, they think I'm Mr. Cool, but I'm jumping out of my skin. But as the game goes on, it all slowed down. You know, I'm swinging slower on 18. For all the money than I was on the first tee, uh, but I practiced all that. <laughs> I practiced the the mental side of it and uh, read books. Just nothing to do with golf. Just how do you how do you act? how do you feel? What do you what's the tricks for the, controlling your mind? And the one that I still have is you know everybody gets negative thoughts you know. I mean, I could be out there, going, "Oh, Jesus, water on the lip." Well, that's a negative thought. But I, I right there, as soon as it hit me, I just stomp, and I could see it coming in my left ear and out my right ear. That's gone. I could just dismiss it, and it's just gone. I'm clear. So, uh, and then if let's say there's trouble on both sides, you know, I'm nervous. Maybe I'm not playing really good. Well, I'd look over here, and I'd run my eyes on the ground all the way across the rough, all the way across the fairway, all the way across the other rough before you get in trouble. That must be 80 yards. If that thing doesn't fit out there in between that, who am I going to beat? And then just step up and hit the hell out of it.
0: Well, you know, we talk about how people talk about overnight successes, or more importantly in today's golf, They said, well, the guy played golf for four days and he made a million and a half dollars. No, it was the preparation and all the things that went before that, you just didn't go out on a golf course one day and figure out how to do this. It was kind of, and you know, no matter what the era was, everybody had ability, so it really is between your
1: ears how you handle that. Well, yeah, and how you develop. Uh, Those great, I have really good instincts, you know, obviously, What I did, you know, 85, at least 85% of it's a gift, but now you got to develop the other 15% or you get your butt kicked. I mean, so there's different degrees of gifts, you know, for a lot of players. But there's been a lot of guys that I would have looked at, thought they had a bigger gift that they couldn't touch me. But there's other guys that I keep chasing (laughs) and – uh, I'll just tell you quick, Nicholas, I've played with him at Rancho Park over in LA. You know how many, I probably played 20 tournaments on that golf course. And the 13th hole is a par five, down goes dog right. huge willow tree on the, down by the green where it turns right. So I hit my drive down there and Jack's over on the right side on the fairway, right at the edge of the fairway. So I just take my three wood, slide it down there around the corner, I got about a 60 yard shot. And Jack's over there, he's got a wood, he's got an iron, he's got a wood. And I'm thinking, what's he doing? You know, and he's looking up at me. So, he, you know, he pulls out that one iron. You know, the head of that thing can't be more than an inch and a half. You know, those one irons, those old McGregor one irons. He hits it over that tree. I mean, it's still going up, but it goes over this tree. And he said, where'd it go, where'd it go? I said, it's on the green, on the green. Where? I can't see it, but it landed on the green. It's a good shot. So we come around the corner, and uh, while I'm walking up there, I'm thinking, I'm trying to beat this guy, (laughs) right? I mean, I could stand there my whole life. I can't get it there. And so we come around the corner. He said, Jim, you said it's on the green. I don't see it. It was on the green. It buried itself. You couldn't even see the top of the ball. It went so deep in in the green. He was about 20 feet from the hole but buried, you know, in the green. Of course, you get to take that out and all that, you know. But I'm thinking, I'm trying to beat this guy, you know. And he had the mind to go with <laughs> Oh, yeah, everything. Yeah, he, you know. So,
0: so you qualify for the tour. You get on the tour. What kind of a life was it then? I mean, you guys drove pretty much from tournament to tournament.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, my first year on the circuit, quick synopsis is I went 11 weeks twice without going home or Marsha coming out. So that's 22 weeks. And she's living with my folks and her folks after we had our own place for five years. uh, It was was pretty hard on her. And so my first Come to Jesus meeting was in Pensacola again in uh, March, and we were playing the tournament there, and I'm staying in a motel, $5 room, no phone, no TV, and I'm thinking about all this, and I'm thinking, you know, this could cost your family, the whole thing, and I didn't like what I decided, but when I was honest with myself, well, the price is the price, I'm gonna do this. I don't want it to, I'll do everything I can to keep that from happening, but that could be the cost. So I get up. It's 1 o'clock in the morning in Pensacola, find a pay phone, call my house, my dad's house, my mom. He wakes up, Marcia. And I said, listen, I don't want you worried about it. You know, in five years, we'll be making fifty grand a year. And she said, well, you know, Jim, I wasn't worried about it. I was asleep. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I decided— that night that I could make $10,000 chipping and putting, but in five years I'd be making 10,000. I needed to get better, because we didn't see the tour like we do now. I mean, I was as good an amateur as there was. You know, I was in top five, top 10, whatever. And, uh, but not like that. So I used to watch really Doug Sanders, Frank Beard, and Dan Sykes. I'd watch these guys practice. Most of them didn't practice like they do now, but those three always kind of went and hit some balls after a round. And I'd sit up on a hill or in a chair and watch them. And I'm thinking, the way they swing, they ought to be hitting duck hooks. They're hitting it, you know, they, some hit a nice draw, they can hit some fades, they can hit it high, and they're using their right side basically, and uh, I'm thinking they ought to be hitting duck hooks. And I'm hitting low duck hooks. I learned to push back and pull down with the left. So, after they'd leave, I'd get my caddy. You know, you had to have your own shag bag and they'd go practice. So, I'd, I'd go hit some balls. Now, so, fast forward, at the in September, we had like two weeks off and Jack Tuthill was the tour official and we only had one PJ Tour official. So he says, you know, you got two weeks off, and then we were playing uh, Portland, Seattle, and the Canadian Open in Vancouver in October. So he comes to me and he says, Jim, I was in the first tournament because I just made the cut. He says, you have to make a check in the last three tournaments or you got to go back to the school. I said, what are you talking about? He says, I said, well, whose decision is that? He says, mine. I said, you're determining my future. I've been out here nine months, and you're telling me right now that I have to make a check in three tournaments. In those days, 50 guys made the cut, 156 teed off. 50 made the cut, and 25 made a check. And, I mean, I was really pissed. I mean, I was... I don't, you know, I'm sure I can't repeat what I said to him. So I had two weeks, I had so anyway, I come back out, I win 900 in Portland, I win 1,200 in Seattle, and I'm in the next to the last group in Vancouver in the Canadian Open, you know, and I'm thinking, you know, well, hell, I might as well go win it now. And I don't know what happened on that front nine. I shot 41 or 42. And I brought it back in 35 on the back nine and won 215 bucks and kept my card and made almost 50 grand the next year uh, and been exempt ever since. But I won, I finished 42nd with like 26,000 something official, but the Hope was a big tournament the Crosby and I played well in those. They didn't count that money. Plus I got to do a few Monday things, you know, whatever. Made close to 50 and uh, well, you kept your so, promise to Marsha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, so, uh, you know, after that, it was just keep trying to get better. And uh, the year after that, I was trying to get better again, and I missed the top 50. Well, by then, it had gone to 60. And uh, But then I won in uh, March in Pensacola. So...
0: Well, you have, a, you have a really good career on the PGA Tour. Then you do some TV yeah. when you're finished with that, yeah. with ESPN, right. and then you take apart the Champions Tour, it's now called the Champions Tour, the Senior Tour at that time. Tell me about that whole experience, because this is, as Chi-Chi said at one time, it's life's greatest mulligan yeah, exactly. for you guys to be able to play at that time on a, on a
1: tour. Exactly, and, and it was exactly that. Uh, see, but before I got off the regular tour, the last one I played was the 87 Open in San Francisco. I never officially retired. I just, my body was killing me. I played there. I had a 10 unit on my back. I had a brace on each knee and every step, it was like somebody's hit me right in the side of the head with a little hammer. And I had driven up there. Marshall and I had driven up there from Las Vegas. So that's where our headquarters was. So I, Driving home, I just told Marcia, I said, you know, I'm just. By then, I had eight golf courses that management company, <clears throat> and Hubbard was already involved there as a partner. Uh, right after I got the first course, he kept coming out to Vegas, and he says, you know, I, uh, I think this is a good business. I need to be, I need to be a partner. And uh, I can't believe I did, but I charged him hundred grand. <laughs> to get any paid. So he, he, he was he was a partner. But so I had some golf courses to do and then I thought, you know, when I got in the golf course business, I was I didn't want to be a designer per se. It's just like playing. When you get a job, you know, as soon as you finish the job, you need a new job. I was looking for reoccurring income. I thought that might be a good idea. And uh The management company there was CCA was all in the private business, Country Clubs of America, and American Golf had just started, and they had like five or six. So, my thought, well, I want to get as far from Jack and Arnold as I can get, because they're working the top of the line, and so I thought, you know, if I could bring the look to public golf, that they see on TV, you know, that would be a good thing, and I'd do it, you know, with numbers rather than high prices. So. I acquired the city course in Las Vegas on a lease deal and basically on a promise to try to bring the PGA Tour back to Las Vegas. That's all I could do is promise. I couldn't make it, guarantee it, best efforts. And that was in 81 when I took over January of 81 on my first course. So uh, in 83 we had the first million dollar tournament in the world anywhere in the world, and uh, the uh, we had the Bob Hope format only in fivesomes instead of foursomes, but Beeman, and every, he understood the value of a million dollar tournament, and uh, one of the players, there's four players on the board, three independent directors and three PGA guys, and the commissioner's actually not a voting member, but we're, we're in the 11th hour. I mean, it's, it's a done deal and I won't mention his name, but one of the players on the board said, you know, we can't play for a million dollars of official money. You know, if you didn't play in that tournament, you'd have no chance of winning the money title. I just said, duh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Dean, like, huh? Yeah. And, uh, so everybody just kind of just let it pass. I mean, it didn't even, you know, embarrass anybody. And, uh, the very next year, there was $3 million tournaments. The year after that, there was 15. And after that, they all win. So, I mean, it skipped 10 years of purses, you know, and our board understood it.
0: Well, during that time, too, I mean, we talk about the, the impact that Arnold have. We right. talk about the impact <laughs> Jack. We talk about Tiger. Right. But Dean Beeman, and during that time, oh. that had a huge impact on yeah. the growth of golf.
1: You know, people find it hard to believe, but when Dean, I was playing in Australia, and I it took, I played the whole day of golf, lost the tournament, I was leading, got on the airplane, and that was, I, I was 48 hours when I got to Pinehurst, North Carolina. That was that tournament where you're gonna play for two weeks, you know? Uh, Crenshaw and uh, Miller Barber did so well there, but anyway. Uh, we got a board meeting, and I get there at about ten in the morning because they have already, you know, they've been in the meeting for a couple hours, and you know I'm bagging the meeting. I'm just give me a room, and I'm going to bed, and Beeman comes running out. I'm not even out of the car, and to whoever was driving me, and uh, he said, "Joe dies, retiring. I want the job." And I said, "Dean, you'd be very good at, because I've been on the board with him for a couple of years." And cause he'd had enough injuries. He was shoulder stuff and hips. And, uh, I thought, you know, he'd be terrific. And I made my mind up that quick. And, but then of course I had to go to the meeting. <laughs> and so we went through the whole long process, but Dean got the job. The chairman of Coca-Cola was a big influence cause Dean was his guy. Coca-Cola was doing pretty good. Still are. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, when Dean got the job, no exaggeration, we had four hundred thousand in the bank. We had a rented office space in New York, and we owned a typewriter. Twenty years later, you know, we got 125 million in assets, a hundred million dollar cash flow business a year. And you know, it's doubled and stuff since then. But you know, uh Fincham was very fortunate, did a nice job, but he got Tiger, <laughs> you know. How about those first 12 years with Tiger and the game and how it grew with Absolutely. television? And,
0: and Dean got a lot of pushback because he wanted to get into the golf course business. He yes. wanted to, he understood <laughs> marketing, and he was way ahead of his time, and you were a big proponent of that also. But he got pushback from that.
1: Well, he got a lot of pushback because uh, Arnold and giant Gary, McCormick actually had the top guys, Mark McCormick. And I used to do a lot of stuff with Mark, but I never signed with him. But by then, he was taken between 15 and 30%. But Mark was on a six-month sabbatical. He'd just gotten married, and he was in Europe. And Nicholas, his manager, he used to be the, pre- he was a, his business manager came from the, being the president of Florida State University. Not a lot of qualifications there. That was a horror story for Jack Ask about over seven years. We had the annual report done at Westchester, and we were going to have a great big meeting that night. And uh, we would released the annual report to all the players, and I'd been lining them up. I mean, we had uh, you know 156 players. I think we had 151 of them at the meeting, and I chaired the meeting. But we got our whole board there, and. Arnold and Jack came in. We met at the president of Citibank's house, and they came in and surrendered. Arnold was playing a senior event in Cleveland, he left. Jack came in and surrendered to the whole place. I mean, stood up there, and, of course, they wanted to see the letter. And he says, there's no reason to do that. Just make everybody upset and everything. He says, we were wrong. We had five points. We were 0 for 5. I mean, how dumb can you be, you know? And he said, you uh, uh, Matter of fact, we thoroughly endorse where this organization is and where it's going. And uh, so it was, there's one funny thing came out of this meeting. So uh, there was like two serious questions. And then like the third question were the bottom fishermen were sitting in the front rows and they raised their hand. And we'd only been like two or three years, when you made the cut, you got a check. Now they thought everybody that tees off ought to make a check. You know, everybody's got expenses, it's true. So I didn't deflect the question, I didn't do, I just, I said, guys, you not only, you you have to pay entry fee, you pay to play. And I said, is a, I can answer your problem right this second. I guarantee the answer. All you need to do is play better. All your problems go away. I mean, last year Watson used back, quote, two or three times. Oh, oh it's just like Colbert said, "Oh, play better, Colbert." You know, you play better, all your problems go away. So there's guys out there, now young guys that have heard that story. So It's pretty sad. That's maybe all they ever remember about me, but play better.
0: Well that's the you know, the line now about kids soccer. Everybody gets a trophy. I mean that's not the way life is. No,
1: no, I'm totally opposed to that. And that's part of growing up. You know, if you really want a trophy, if it means something to you, get better. Go work at it. So
0: now you've had this wonderful career, you've done extremely well, you got golf course business. You met Hubbard already. How does this all come together? Because we're all fortunate to be part of this wonderful place. Uh, How does that relationship continue and and morph into what we see today?
1: Well, uh, so Hubbard was involved, you know, and uh, a matter of fact, uh, I left. I wasn't going to play the seniors, but I was covering them. And I'm watching them and I'm thinking I'm better than they are. And because I was swing-wise and striking the ball, I was way better in my 40s than I was in my 30s, and way better in my 50s than I was in my 40s. And I'd met a guy named Jimmy Ballard, and you know, in a half hour, I finally met somebody. I mean, I worked with Jack Grout for a week. I worked with Toski. I worked with Gardner Dickinson. I worked with the A Bear Boys. I could. Physically, I could do. If you could explain what goes where and when, I can do it. You know, I'm, you know. So, uh, when I met Jimmy Ballard, then my whole career. Well, I won four tournaments on the tour before that and was ready to quit, and I won 31 after. So, that'll give you some idea what I think happens when where you hit a golf ball. It's not up for debate. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, where were we? <laughs> we were just talking about getting together then. With Hubbard yeah. and and how that all uh, evolves right. into this. So, so Hubbard was on my board of directors and uh, very influential. So Hubbard had been was absolutely well. You know how quick a study is. I mean, so I mean anybody knows the golf business. He knows the golf business. But I'm in between the tours. We're doing this. I'm Hubbard. Not we're do, we're doing good. The company's doing good and he calls me, and we come over here, Ed Allred, Doc Allred, so we play Bighorn. When Allred and Hubbard started playing, because they met because of the horse business, quarter horse business, and uh, then I bought a lot, and we all built houses, and that's how we got to Bighorn.
0: And Westinghouse owned it at that time?
1: Yes, so fast forward... I'm now really busy playing on the seniors. I mean, you know, this is the best and most fun thing I've ever done. Successful enough. I got my own jet,
0: but you came a long way from wanting to make <laughs> 50 grand a year to now yeah. having your own airplane for sure.
1: Yeah. And, uh, so we're, I'm on the road Hubbard calls. He says, Colbert, we're going to lose our ass. And he said, uh, couple of buses pulled up today, and the guys got out, and they're going to go play golf. You know, he says, you know, we built these houses. He says, well, you know, we need to buy this place, you know. <laughs> so it, went, it was about a year and a half from that time. And he was talking to him and everything, but I was on the board with the chairman of Westinghouse so on the PJ board for a year. We were the co-chairman of all the first 12 TPC courses that were built. And so Westinghouse decided to get out of the development business. And the president of Westinghouse Development put the group together to buy it. Who knew the most about it? They did. And they had Half Moon Bay out here and a couple other properties in this one, but 95% of their stuff's in Florida. So they spun off the West Coast, you know, on the closing. So we ended up with Bighorn. I think there was eight of us. Hubbard's a general partner. Everybody else is limited. And I would like to make a point of that. I was really fortunate that, because I made investments here, I made other investments, but this one was the best one I ever did by far uh, here at Bighorn. So right from the get-go. Uh, and Hubbard had never been in a development business, not one minute. He'd owned property. He had sold some property here and some property there. Uh, he'd been in a lot of different businesses and a big success, but he, he had never been in the development business. But, I mean, he, he had the views and we talked a lot, because we were in the business. I mean, stuff like, well, should you be able to use your cell phone? Well, Hubbard, you want somebody under 70?
0: Well, you were a great resource well, for him. But again, the business model works. Somebody oh, has yeah. to make all the decisions Absolute. because decision by committee it is, never no, never is the right
1: way to go. In anything. I mean, that's how we got started in the golf course business. I mean, you know, members of the country club, I mean, they got zero chance. You know, they just... I mean, it's just simple. I just pick any hole anywhere in the world, hole number 13, the new president doesn't like the bunker, or he thinks there ought to be a bunker.
0: <laughs> but you did when you came in, as I understand it, that the front nine was pretty hard for Well, the front a lot nine
1: is like can... it is now. It was the mountain nine. Right. I mean, that was all Hubbard. He said, well, you know, I'm switching the nines. I mean, let's let them warm up and play you know before they get up there and maybe lose a few golf balls and if they lose a few golf balls up there to the second night they're going to be so impressed with all the views but we I don't want to wear them out <laughs> on you know which made 100% I mean that was never up for debate <laughs> that was Hubbard all the way in and,
0: and then when you when you did the canyons um uh, you know I understand that you know you were involved in not to design but you were very involved in a late-night business meeting and getting the designer to agree to do uh, the Canyons golf course.
1: Well, you know, he had arrived and he wanted Fazio, and my observation was Fazio does the best private golf courses in the world, Uh, where if you ask me about Jack, Jack at that time was doing the best resort courses. But they were pretty hard but magnificent to look at, and most golfers, if they can't play a course, they just figure they're not good enough. Uh, some of Jack's original private courses needed a lot of redo. It was just too hard on a daily basis for the quality of the player. And so, and Fazio was always a listener. I mean, he would do, because I've, I've known him forever. So, so we make an appointment and go to the masters. Uh, to meet Fazio, and uh, we go to dinner. Uh, it's 11:30 at night when we're going to dinner in downtown Augusta. And uh, Rick Smith, the guy from Michigan, has been in golf courses, done some TV, teaches. He and Fazio are there. And uh, I don't. I just tell a little sidebar. <laughs> uh, so we got our little table there. Somebody had a basketball, you know, and Hubbard used to play basketball. And, you know, it's, it's midnight now, and, you know, we haven't been in church. And uh, let me see that basketball. And he's going to put it up and spin it on his finger. Oh, man, it flies over this other table, hits their wine, knocks it all over there. I mean, he bought everybody's dinner in the whole place. <laughs> okay. So, anyway, so we got Fazio pump full of wine and he agrees to do it. He says, I'll do it. And <clears throat> so now we're trying to get the contract done, Hubbard is, and he says, uh, he's starting to buck a little bit. You know, he's not sure he wants to do it. And I said, well, I'll handle that. So I just called Rick. Hey, Rick, didn't he say he was going to do it for sure? He said, yeah, well, would you call your buddy and tell him he said he'd do it? <laughs> and so... As Joe says, I'm in, you know, so it but it was something he needed to do anyway, because it wasn't very long after that. Some other people offered him a million dollars not to do it that that he had, you know, so uh, he really did need to do that because he, he doesn't give exclusives. I mean, who would? Right. So uh, so it all worked out for, you know, for the best. Yeah, it certainly turned
0: out. And now, Jim. We're going to take a short break for a message from Leeds & Son. You're buying more than a diamond ring or you're buying more than a watch when you come to Leeds & Son. You're buying integrity. You're buying value. You're buying the best products in the world brought to the Coachella Valley with great care. Leeds & Son, the Coachella Valley's jewelry experts. And now we're back with Jim Colbert. Today, what you see, the new clubhouse, and I know that you were instrumental or not instrumental but certainly strongly suggested that maybe that was something that we should do again mr hubbard was the one that made that decision and look what has happened is there a place jim that you've ever seen that is this kind of a package where we've got steakhouse and golf courses and clubhouse there's
1: there's, there's no resort in the world that has everything that we have I mean, let's go back to the clubhouse to start with. That's the only assessment we've had in 20 years here. I mean, we have over 200 members that got a new spa, a new marketplace, okay, a new golf course, another new clubhouse over there. This new clubhouse, free. Free. That was out of the investors' money or the cash flow, however you want to look at it. Uh, the clubhouse. Robbie Pike, one of our members, but at the time he'd only been a member maybe three or four or five years, and he he had, you know, a great vision of this place and as did Hubbard, or does Hubbard, and he says, you know, the clubhouse doesn't fit, there's nothing, the clubhouse is nice, but it doesn't fit the real estate and the real estate prices and the members that we have. And so I took it to Hubbard, and of course he said, I ain't built no clubhouse, you know. But he got to thinking about it, thinking about it, he says, "You know, Jim, I am going to think about it." So then he hired somebody, consultant. You know, to, you know. Once he started doing that, uh, you know, it was it was pretty far along. And one of the things he didn't do when we ended up doing the second course ourselves, where we thought it was we were going to be partners, and. Uh, you know, when I forget the numbers, but at a certain time it belongs to the membership, but it's really the piece of paper, you, you know. But I said, you know, we did that with the first course, but we should own it. And then after you sell all the real estate and everything, then you can sell it back to the members, which is what everybody does. And he said, no, I'm not doing that. It's, you know, that was, that was a, you know, you're talking probably ten or twelve million, more if you got greedy. Uh, We spent 40-something over there. Uh, Just once, we were having a couple drinks a few years ago. He says, you know, know, we should still have that club. (laughs) (laughs) But that's the only time it was ever mentioned. But uh, there's no—this is the best business model in the United States. And I say that because of our employees— and their benefits, and their kids' college education. Uh, You know, uh, we, I don't know, last year we had like 109 kids in college, plus what we do with the Marine Base, and plus the 12 local charities that we gave a half million dollars, split up a half million dollars, 12 local charities last year. But our employee benefit fund is second to none. And uh, this is the the, Best business model in any business.
0: Well, and Mr. Hubbard said, you know, he's a great believer that the employees share in the success of the, the club. Yes. That uh, th- that they're an important asset to this club. And we all agree with that because, uh, you know, we get treated so well, but they're really part of the family.
1: You know, I I have, you know, my foundation, you know, they come out, you know, Super Bowl weekend, and we play golf for a couple of days, watch the Super Bowl, and now in the hub, Don't bother anybody, Uh, they come, you know, I do a lot of charity where, you know, well, you know, I just finished Jay Haas' group. Uh, You know, they sell me for 10 to 15,000 and then they're my guests out here at Big Horn. I entertain them for a couple days, feed them, play golf with them, and that's my contribution to Jay's charity. I take care of them when they're out here. But, so, this club is so philanthropic that, but Hubbard's money goes first, you know, So uh, well, you know this because you won a tournament with him, and it was supposed to be $5,000 dollars, and uh, he donated that to the uh, yeah, I saw you we fall. All out, did. I saw you fall out, the, out of your chair. <laughs> oh no, he donated everybody's money. That's exactly right., <laughs> yeah. but it's for
0: it. And, and that's what I'd also like to talk to you about is that particular event, because you're instrumental in putting that together every year. And so many of the employees and their kids benefit from oh, yeah. from that tournament. How did that come about? It's become, to me, it's the best event we do. Well, and we do a lot of good events, but that's as good an event as we do all year.
1: You know, that's, I, I can judge it from a different perspective is my golf pros. They come back 100%. It's, it's so successful that you know i need to bring in new blood so I started with 20 we're up to 26 and it's hard for me to invite new guys because you know i say if you come then you're going to be invited back and uh so i'm going to have to make a decision or two because there's some new guys i want to add you know so that our field keeps changing so you get to play with a bunch of new pros but Uh, The pros love it. I mean, you just come in and you sit down there, you leave Trevino, you have breakfast with him, you eat lunch with him. One of the newer guys that happened to have dinner with him
0: last year during the tournament, and he said, why haven't I heard about this for the last 10 years? He said,
1: this is the best thing we're invited to all year. Right, so, but again, so much of that is like my Colbert Hills people and all these other groups, they leave, they talk about the staff, I mean, any of my Colbert Hills guys, of course, we've been doing it for a lot of years. I mean, if they walk in the door, I mean, Bob in the locker room or Abel out front, oh, hi, Mr. Jones, how are you? I mean, they, they you know, you and I know they have walkie talkies, but anyway. <laughs> but it is that—that's what—that's
0: what brings people back. That's yes. what they're amazed at. They've yes. been at good places, not as good as this, but the staff is really what puts it over oh, the top.
1: They are unbelievable uh you know the everybody that i've ever brought out here that's what they go away with is our employees which is which is terrific i mean i
0: i've got a couple of questions just to kind of tie things up jim and one is who has had the greatest influence on your life
1: well, you mean other than my wife? I've been married sixty years. Wow. I mean, you can. That's, a good, that's an awfully good start, right there. Well, I mean, you can. Uh, well, you know me well enough that that's not the easiest sixty years she ever been around. <laughs> you know, I have my good moments, but I mean, you you know that she'd be in the top first twenty five probably. Uh, well, what a great partner she's been. Through, oh yeah. through everything. I mean, that's really. I mean, yeah. she's been so supportive, but. I'm most proud of our three daughters, our grandson's granddaughter, our great-grandsons, our great-granddaughters, because our daughters raised them. And they're all super kids. And the kids growing up, you know, our daughters are all full grown and now their kids are full grown and having their own families. But it has run through our family and I can't take any credit. It. it it's the way Marsha brought him up. I was gone. Right. I mean, I've had a lot of fun with our grandkids, especially five grandsons. They got the caddy for me. I mean, they call every week still. And, uh, but Marsha was raised the girls and and now they've raised their families. So when I look at our family tree, I mean, they got to be the first 25 or whatever. That's a great legacy, for sure. I mean, but it's her. I mean, you know, fortunately I could provide some funds. We had nice, you know, things we've been able to do. But she was hands-on and with the grandkids. Now with the great-grandkids, they still love to come out and be around us and everything, which is really nice. But my grandsons, they call every week.
0: That's true. You know, it
1: really is. So, uh, you know, business-wise, well, obviously it would be Hubbard. Uh, I've had a lot of business associates, a lot of them really good. Uh, but he's long-term, and <clears throat> I hope he feels this way about me, but... You know, Hubbard's still doing a lot of things. He's playing his gin games. He plays a little golf. I don't play golf with him anymore because, you know, anything from five feet or six feet in's a gimme, and I don't feel like I'm playing, you know, if I can't try to make the short ones. and But anything comes up, he calls me, I call him, or we'll just sit down and talk for an hour. You know, I don't feel like – I don't feel ignored. I don't think he feels ignored, you know. But, you know, we all have our own circle of friends, but I would put two of us, you know, really tight. I mean, if he needed some, he'd call me. If I needed some, he'd be the first call. He knows that.
0: Another question we ask is, um, what advice would you give today to a 20-year-old Jim Colbert?
1: Have the courage of your own convictions. Uh, do your homework. Always do your homework. But when I think back, I go to a freshman English class in high school. And Marcia remembers that she was sitting right in front of me. I was just saying, I'm gonna marry you and take you places. She thought she meant dancing. <laughs> but anyway, uh I, we were diagramming sentences, you know, and so I had a mind in, but I only went down a few stages. And she said, well, Jim, you, Sister Patrice, you didn't finish the diagram. I said, well, I did all I needed to know. And she says, no, no, you're gonna have to write letters, you're gonna have to do all this kind of stuff. You know, you really do need to know this. It's important, it's gonna be important for you. And I said, no, my secretary will do that. And she said, how do you know you'll have one? I mean, I was so naive, I just thought everybody did. I said, well, I don't know, but I surely will. And (laughs) did. But, I mean, I know that's kind of a crazy answer to your question, but it's like Oklahoma State. I'm school there. I mean, I'm staying in the coach's house. You know? It's like when I didn't take the job. (laughs) It's just, I've. I don't know that they're smart it's just instincts or whatever but I've always kind of had my own mind and it wasn't always with the grain you know but you were true to your instincts yeah Yeah. you know instincts with some rationale and uh but they're not all you know if we want to talk about all the ones that didn't work we can get there too but nobody bats a hunter so whatever
0: Tim, I really want to thank you for being here today. I mean, not just sharing your stories, but sharing yourself and being part of what we have today here at Bighorn. Uh, you've been an integral part, as I said at the start of this. I really thank you for spending some time. And I hope down the line, we can revisit because I know you have even more stories than uh, you shared with us today.
1: Yeah, I'm you know, i flattered that you asked. And so Marty, I'm happy to do this. and. Bighorn is the best place I've ever been anywhere in the world. And I haven't been to all the places, but I've been to almost all the really good ones where they put them on TV and play tournament golf. And there's a lot of really, really good ones. This is the most inclusive. And this is the one with almost no rules. Be yourself, just do not interfere with your neighbor. If you don't interfere with your neighbor, you're good here. Well,
0: again, I thank you. I also thank Leeds and Sons for being a supporter of our broadcast and our podcast. And again, Jim Colbert, thank you very much for being here.
1: Thanks, Marty.